Welcome to Hey, All You Zombies. Uh, my name is Chris Abel, and uh, over there is the much famous, celebrated author, Mr. Richard Krause. Yay! <laughs> oh, yes. This is it. This is, I'm going to be talking about this this week. I've held off long enough. It's the new Fant book. Fantastic. I, and you've got, I mean, great news to share about it, too. So, mm -hmm. you know, very, very exciting. Um, let's see. Well, I just literally moments came away from a big zombie event held here in Toronto at Young and Dundas. I knew nothing about this. I know. Uh, it's, it's bizarre. So the Heart and Stroke Foundation mm -hmm. is um, holding this ma massive campaign called the Undeading. And um, what's going to happen is at the end of the month on October 25th at Wonderland, the big theme park north of the city here, uh, they're going to try to go for the Guinness Book of World Records in terms of the most people performing CPR uh, in one location at one time. <laughs> and uh, to kind of draw attention to that today, uh, they had a zombie flash mob right. uh, they held at Young and Dundas. I'll, I ran over to kind of check it out, and I can share a photo with you. There we are. So they had um, a bunch of people dressed up as zombies. Are they doing dance. the thriller dance? They are doing the thriller dance, yes. It's unmistakable. <laughs> now it's interesting as you mentioned like you know there wasn't a lot of information about this mm -hmm. shocking to me because i've just been chatting with the heart and stroke foundation for the last two weeks they've right. been pounding on my door they have a new app it's all about health wanted me to review it uh, i did so on news talk 1010 never in the the conversation did they ever happen to mention that this huge zombie thing going on <laughs> it's, it's kind of you know that crazy I don't understand, you know. So um, not sure what the miscommunication was there, but it kind of reflected that when I got out there, there weren't a lot of people at, mm. at their event. So I think there was a bit of a failure in trying to get the, the word out there, even well, though I did, think it's a good cause. Wait, did they just uh, do it on Twitter or something? Is that how they got people there? No, they put out a newswire release. So you had well, a lot of Because everyone's media. got the newswire uh, attached <laughs> yeah. to their... Uh... I know. So, I mean, uh, CTV was there with the camera crew, for example. Right. Uh, you know, I know Space is one of their partners, and so Space Channel, I think, had right. somebody that was out there. Right. But in terms of the actual public, no, I think that uh, they didn't really get the word out there. Right. Uh, it was also, I have to say, um, it's hard because we've been showcasing a lot of really cool photos from zombie walks around the right. world that are awesome. And so it's it's kind of embarrassing that this wasn't of that same caliber. I mean, the one photo that I've shown up there, and that's all I really have, uh, because that was the only shot that I could get that had enough zombies in the frame. Right. Uh, what right. they did to fill it out was they had close to, I don't know, 50, 60 people in Heart and Stroke Foundation uh, mm. red T-shirts, right. which really didn't help. I mean, you're trying to turn heads. You need people to be dressed as zombies. Yeah. Now, not to be too critical of them, because I think in other ways they're doing a fantastic job. If you go to um, what is it, the undeading.ca, I'll post a link to it. Okay. They've actually commissioned a video, a viral video that they put out on YouTube that is directed by Vincenzo Natale. Really? That's cool. He, Vincenzo made a movie uh, that I really liked called uh, Splice. He's made a number of movies I really liked, but Splice uh, was sort of the most recent one, and it's good stuff. Yeah. I'm on the Undeading website. It's pretty cool. It is very cool. Yeah. Uh, he's done a fantastic job. It's a great tongue-in-cheek little miniature movie uh, mm -hmm. of some zombies that end up giving CPR to a woman rather than eating her. Uh, and I think they did a fantastic job. Uh, they've partnered up with uh, the haunted, um, one of the haunted theme uh, zones that's going to be up at, uh, at Wonderland. And they're also going to be um, uh, partnering up with the Zombie Walk team here in, in Toronto for on the right. 20th of October will be the massive zombie walk. So, And and I'm sure that that's going to be a much better representation of the zombie community here in Toronto than what we saw today. But Right. It was, a, it was a fun event that they had, just it didn't, you know, as, as something that's trying to draw attention from a marketing perspective, not as successful as I think it could have been. Well, I'm doing my part right now. I've just put it on Facebook and on Twitter. 
Awesome. Cool. So there we go. There. <laughs> I'll help them any way that I can. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, I mean, it was interesting that that happened, but I, yeah, I was surprised that, I mean, number one, they should have let you know because Vincenzo Natale is involved. And number two, I mean, they were on the phone with me. They could have mentioned they had this big zombie thing. And just, yeah. Well, it's I great. I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of uh, things going on in the city right now for Easter seals, just down the street from where I live. I walked by this morning very early on my way to the radio station and like scaffolding was being put up and, and things. And I didn't know what was going on. And then I checked out my Twitter feed and people are talking about rappelling down the side of the office building that's at the corner up here <laughs> to raise money. So I missed out on that as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, other major events that are happening in the world of zombies uh, we should talk about. George Romero. Uh, there's a campaign to get him a star. Oh, uh, yes. Did you notice that? Yeah, no, I, I posted it on my Facebook um, a while ago, um, and uh, now it seems to have gained a little traction, it seems like. Yeah, I think last time I checked, it was far more, higher than $45,000 right. um, in terms of what they raised, which was more than they were asking for, and that's a right. good thing. Uh, now, I don't know how you feel about it, because for me, I'm sort of meh when it comes to the Walk of Fame. Right. I, well, stars. Yeah, you know what? They don't really mean anything anymore. That's the thing. I mean, it, it's 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 an initiative by the uh, you know the the Business Improvement Association of Greater Los Angeles. I mean, and it but it is a pretty cool uh, tourist attraction. I've spent a lot of time walking up and down Hollywood Boulevard looking for them. But you know, for me, it's always sort of interesting to see whose star is where. You know, right. You've been putting these things up there for a long time. And so, you know, you'd be walking along and you'd be like, oh, Zazu Pits, you're in front of a porno store. Oh, you'd be horrified if you knew. Um, but so that there's, you know, there, there's, it, it, that's always interesting to me to have a look around. But, you know, George Romero, listen, for horror fans, the idea of being represented in this way, I think is pretty cool. And uh, I'm actually doing something. I'm going to throw up a little thing on screen share here. Um, I'm hosting an event with George Romero soon. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, I'm hosting a screening of Land of the Dead with George uh, Romero and Michael Doherty, uh, who was the editor of that film. And um, you can uh, check my Facebook page for all of the sort of details. It's being held at a screening room in town here. Um, and we're going October Oh, it's deluxe. Yeah, it's deluxe. So it's, yeah, no, I've been there. Okay. It's a fancy, dancy little... Uh, yeah. So we're going to go there. We're going to do this. And then uh, I'm hosting a Q&A with them afterwards. So it should be uh, it should be fun. I'll ask him that night what he thinks about this uh, Walk of Fame thing. Yeah. See if he's interested or not. Because really, as far as I know, he has nothing to do with this so far. No, no. I mean, this is uh, the Zombie Research Institute. I think the foundation, the group of people have, have assembled. But at least right. they, they, they got Simon Pegg to be in their video. It shows that there is sort of, you know, it's not just a cash grab. These yeah. are people who are sincere in terms of doing this. I You know, definitely George Romero is uh, maybe a, a name that not enough people who love zombies are aware of, you know, in terms of his role. So you could say he sh deserves to be honored. And it's the Walk of Fame. And so for a guy who created The Walking Dead, that kind of is a great tie in there. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I don't know that, they're, that they have that kind of ironic sense of humor over there at the uh, Business Improvement uh, Association. Yeah, and I don't know if there's anywhere along that strip that there might be a cemetery they could possibly get the star in front of. Um, oh, it's possible. I mean, I, there's the there's uh, Hollywood Forever, I think, is down along there. I mean, it's, oh, it extends, wow. it goes down uh, right by Paramount Studios there. So, yeah, no, there's a number of uh, cemeteries there. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure it's Hollywood Forever. There's a big one that's right behind Paramount Studios uh, that I've visited a number of times because it's really cool. Uh, you know, uh, um, there's all sorts of people buried there, including uh, Mel Blanc, and his gravestone at the very top of it says, that's all, folks, which is kind <laughs> of spectacularly cool. Yeah. Uh, but there's all sorts of cool stuff there. Um, but uh, uh, I don't know if it's right, if it's close enough to the walk of fame. Anyway, but they show, uh, at around Halloween, they show horror movies and zombie movies projected onto one of the crypts there oh wow. which is really cool so you can see you know night of the living dead uh in a cemetery like at midnight it's cool wow i mean so obviously there's potential here that if they did it right if they're creative enough with it it would be something far better than the usual because it seems like every 
couple of months, somebody's getting a star on the Walk of Fame. Well, and, and it's always seems to yeah. be like they, see. This is why they don't really mean anything to me anyway. Is that they always seem to be. Uh, oh look, Jennifer Aniston has a movie. Oh, she's getting a new. She's getting a star on the Walk of Fame because she's got another forgettable rom com coming out, and they don't really mean anything that much. And and you have to pay for them. It's not an honor that no. is being bestowed. It's not like getting a key to the city. If right. you had to pay fifty thousand dollars to get a key to the city, it might not be as impressive. <laughs> Completely. You know. Oh. Well, that event that you're hosting is going to be fantastic. I mean, right. there are opportunities to go see a screening with the director there and maybe one of the stars. Those aren't always as fun as they, they sound to be. When you get the right. director and the editor there, then you're getting real conversations in terms of how the movies are assembled, yeah. uh, what they're putting together. Yeah, they're no, it will be insights. interested. It, it's being uh, sponsored by the Canadian Cinema Editors, and uh, it's their first, oh. and is the, the first of what they hope to make an annual event. Uh, and so it's it's from that point of view, and it'll be you know it'll be a night for people that are really interested in how movies are made, rather than you know people that want to hear about uh, the stars or whatever. It'll be it'll, this will be a much different kind of night, and it should be I think fascinating. I've, I've hosted a number of events for these guys, and uh, they're interesting and funny, and you never know what's going to happen at them. No, completely. And the deluxe screening room. Uh, it's, is nice, beautiful, yeah. yeah. If nice, you want to see a movie, that's one of the great. I went there and saw a 3D screening of uh, the first hockey game, and was more right. uh, obviously. I'm not a big hockey guy, so I was more right. impressed by the screening and the seats yeah. and stuff like that. So yeah, that's going to be a fantastic event. Yeah, no, it should be. Uh, it should be really fun. I think. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Well, what would you like to talk about? Um, I'd like to talk about. Uh, well, you know, listen. I'm shameless. I'm going to talk about my book. Um, I'm going to talk about, uh, I've been doing a lot of interviews this week. My book is out finally. It's taken uh, uh, two years of uh, writing and sort of researching. Here's a picture of it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's called Raising Hell, Ken Russell and the Unmaking of the Devils. And uh, it's available uh, over the course of the month. It'll start appearing in bookstores on your corner. It's available online all over the place. And we've been really fortunate. We've got some great reviews. Uh, Guillermo del Toro said this is not only a great book, it's a necessary book. Uh, and, you know, David Cronenberg, a lot of people have thrown their, their uh, uh, approval behind this book, which is, uh, I'm humbled and grateful that uh, they were that uh, kind to do that. Um, uh, but I wanted to talk just a little bit about uh, why I wrote this book, and there's there's two things, two stories I'll tell. First of all, um, uh, people have been asking me if I remember the first time that I saw the movie The Devils, and I don't really. I was young when I saw it. I remember it blew my mind and scared me and upset me and probably scarred me for a very long time. Uh, it came out in 1971. I was only eight in 1971, so I didn't see it then. Uh, but I became a Ken Russell fan. He's the director of the film. I became a Ken Russell fan uh, around the time of the movie Tommy, which came out when I was about 12 years old. And Tommy, uh, for me, was you know a record that I loved that my brother – uh, had it was the Who record, uh, and then I heard they were making this movie about it, and you know, like Roger Daltrey from the Who was in it. Well, that's pretty cool. Elton John's in it. That's even cooler. Tina uh, Turner, you know, Jack Nicholson. And it goes on and on and on. The, the stars in this movie, Eric Clapton, and I was desperate, desperate to see it, but it was never ever going to come to the town that I lived in. And so, at about age twelve, I saved up money did odd jobs, whatever, and uh, got up early one morning and said, all right, people, see ya, I'm out of here. I'm going to go to uh, a soccer practice or baseball. I made up some excuse, uh, which my parents, I guess, because they were tired uh, or, you know, half asleep, went, all right, son, do whatever you're going to do. Didn't realize that I, you know, I, I don't play soccer or uh, baseball or any of those things, so I wouldn't be going to practice. And then I hitchhiked to Halifax, which is about 200 miles away, uh, to see the movie and I paid for one ticket. I watched it. I came back out as the credits were rolling, bought another ticket, went in. I saw it three times that day, bought all three tickets, then hitchhiked home and came back and, you know, caught hell uh, in a, you know, astounding way. I was granted for about a year. It was worth it. Year, year and a half. I can't remember. It was a long time. And it was worth it. Uh, because the movie really sort of opened my eyes. And it was some time in and around there that I would have seen The Devils again, you know, 12, 13 years old. And it's still, it's not a movie for a 12 or 13-year-old. Cut too many years later, I'm asked to host uh, a night with Ken Russell. There's going to be a screening of this movie, The Devils. 
And, uh, and the, the interesting part of that to me was I had since seen it again, probably at least once. And I, I realized that it was something special, that it was kind of a masterpiece, but I hadn't really uh, done a whole lot of research. And I accepted that the version that I saw was the version that was available. And that's what you were supposed to see. Um, uh, as I will tell you in a moment, that's not exactly true, but uh, they asked me to host a night with Ken Russell. And so it was going to be at the Bloor Cinema in Toronto. And the Bloor Cinema uh, holds about 950 people. So I walked over there that night uh, on my way to have dinner with Ken beforehand. I thought it would be good if we got to uh, uh, meet one another. And there were hundreds of people outside. And I thought, oh, man, this is going to be a great event. I mean, there's so many people here. And people sort of recognize me as I walk by. And they're like, hey, dude, it's going to be awesome. We can't wait to, you know, the whole thing. It's gonna, it sounds like it's going to be really great. I get over to the restaurant. And uh, Ken Russell's there. And he's very friendly. You know, he's nice enough, but he's not saying a word to me, like not a word. I would say, uh, I tell him the Tommy story and he'd go and shake his head knowingly, but not say anything. Hmm. I would say, are you enjoying being in Toronto? You know, nothing. It was freaking me out because I know that I've got 950 people waiting to see an hour long chat between the two of us. So anyway, eventually I got so freaked out, I left and went over to the theater uh, just to sort of, you know, get a gauge on what was going on over there. And the place is packed. Uh, I get a phone call. Ken Russell's on his way over. Let's do this. So I start the intro, still not knowing whether he's going to say a word or not or what kind of night this is going to turn into. And eventually, uh, I get him up there. I ask him a question. And the first answer is a little iffy. But what had happened is between the time that he entered the theater, he was elderly at the time. Uh, it took him a long time to get down the aisle, so I gave him a big build-up. And I'm like, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Ken Russell! Yeah. And it was uh, it was as if the second coming was happening at that moment. People leapt to their feet, and they were yelling his name and applauding and stuff. And I think that that, that warmed him enough so that eventually he started to speak. And, and the interview uh, turned out really, really well. I was very pleased with it. We talked about all sorts of things, not just the devils. Uh, we took questions from the audience. We talked about many things. But uh, it was that moment that I decided that I should probably uh, write it. I was looking around for another book project. And uh, it was that moment that I thought, you know what, I should probably uh, do this because, um, you know, the way that these people responded to him, uh, I thought, if nothing else, I'll sell 950 copies of it to the people that are in the theater here. <laughs> and so I spent two years tracking down everyone and, and uh, finding the actors and all the people involved. And, you know, uh, you know, I, I won't belabor the point, but uh, people ask me a couple of things. Why did you choose to write the book? Well, that's why, because I think Ken Russell had been in a, a lot of ways forgotten about. Uh, he was a masterful filmmaker. Uh, and I thought uh, if, you know, this small audience, this small cross section would respond to him that way, that maybe it's time to remind people about him a little bit. And also the film is a masterpiece, whether you see it uh, uncut, which is unlikely because there's only one copy of that and it's held very tightly in the arms of the British Film Institute in, in London. Uh, so either you see that or you can see the, the multitude of other versions that are out there. There's one on iTunes. There's, they're, they're around on the internet. And, and uh, with or without the scene, or the, the couple of scenes that, that blow people's minds, it's still a masterful film. So I wrote a book about this, uh, about one of the first movies to uh, take violence, which has always been a topic in movies. Paul Mooney movies like the Scarface, the Scourge of the Nation, were being banned in the 30s. Uh, you know, uh, sexuality has always been a, a big topic in films. Religion has been a topic in movies since they first threaded film through a projector. So none of the things that he tackles in this story about a, a, a whiskey-drinking, womanizing priest who butts heads with uh, a troubled nun who thinks that she's in love with him and that he turns into a demon and makes love to her, and Cardinal Richelieu, who is looking to take over uh, this walled town that they live in, that they all live in. Um, none, no movie before that really had taken that unholy trinity of sex, violence, and, and uh, religion 
and bundled them in the way that Ken Russell did in this movie. And that's why you probably haven't seen this movie today in the way that it was meant to be seen. And that's why it was such a fascinating thing to uh, write about. And frankly, you know, the, the, uh, um, uh, the, the, the point of writing the book was to, you know, sort of point an arrow back towards uh, uh, Ken Russell and to uh, have people have another look and reassess this movie a little bit. And uh, judging by the reviews we're getting from The Hollywood Reporter and uh, Entertainment Weekly and people like that, uh, it seems to be working. So hopefully, you know, people will check out the book. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know sort of, you know, how you pulled it off, but uh, it just seems to be the right place and the right time for this book to come out. Ju judging by the reaction that you've been getting, which is just astonishing i mean it's it's not just that you have guillermo del toro the list of film directors that have number one took the time from their schedules to read your book yeah and then also to sit down and write entire passages and blurbs and testimonials for you which weren't sent to you personally i was talking to your editor i know that mm. this was sort of they had to kind of go through ecw press and yeah. all sorts of things but it's astonishing i mean it's not just People who are looking to, you know, the list is not people who are self-promotional. These are not the typical no. names. Well, no. Terry Gilliam doesn't need to, you know, in terms of promoting his career, doesn't need to have a quote on this book. And, and the interesting thing is um, it, it was done through the publisher, and that's the, the only way to do blurbs. Because right. who's to say that I didn't write the Terry Gilliam you know, uh, quote yeah. and just say this. Hey, you emailed it to me personally. Well, you know, what they do is they go through the, the, the publisher. Everything's verified and you know, they're for real. But, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, if you're on the, the receiving end, if you are Terry Gilliam, you're getting this mm -hmm. sort of official request, you're more likely to ignore it because of that, that nature, because yeah. they're being harassed and pestered all the time, the same That's way that right. you and I are, except on a much larger scale. So yeah. for, for that book to arrive, and for people like David Cronenberg, John Landis, Joe Dante, to look at their desks, which are covered in stuff that they probably <laughs> have, you know, have been putting off for five years, and to grab that and go, well, this, I'm going to take my afternoon off. They probably ignored something very important they had to do that afternoon, and this was an indulgence that they sat down. Uh, and it could have easily, after they flipped through the first couple of chapters, just sort of tossed the book aside and went back and did something else. But you managed to inspire them to sit down and actually write yeah, and, and, and listen, I'm as I said earlier, I'm humbled and, and grateful that they've all done that. I was also very pleased at the uh, launch party uh, recently. We had it on uh, Monday night uh, here in Toronto that uh, this fellow turned up. This is excellent. This is uh, uh, where you're seeing on one side of your screen, you're seeing Father Grandier as played by uh, on the cover of my book as played by Oliver Reed. On the other side, you're seeing Father Grandier personified by Chris Abel, zombie yeah. master. Well, you know, we've talked it's a lot about stuff. cosplay on this series, and so I thought I have to – you now appreciate what it means when somebody does something like that. I'm, yeah. And plus, it's an opportunity for me to plant the flag and be the first person probably in the world to do the devil's cosplay. <laughs> so there you go. I you may, you are person. a groundbreaker. I would imagine you are a groundbreaker in that, in that uh, uh, way. You know, I, the, 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 the launch party turned out really well. I was really happy with her. So many people there, and it turned out really well. Uh, but the uh, the beard and uh, soul patch, the Grandier soul patch, uh, was an excellent addition to the party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it. Uh, I didn't have the time to sort of get full clerical garb. I would have liked to have done that, but probably best that I didn't because I, of course, I don't drive, so I had to walk to your oh, book launch. Yeah, yeah. And um, I thought, you know what? It's October for crying out loud. Somebody walking around with a false mustache, especially, you know, in, in the college and bathroom sort yeah. of area, should not be any big of a reaction. We have people that are dressed like punk rockers, people yeah. who are dressed like yeah. zombies. I had guys cross the street. <laughs> really? Boy, yeah, Did you really. get away from you? Yeah. That's yeah. funny. Yeah. I, I'm a priest. I don't I'm know. I'm a priest. Well, I wasn't even in garb. I just had the, the, the strange mustache, but that was enough. I saw people walking towards me stop and sort of like not sure what they were dealing with and just sort of cross the street and go to the other side. That's and I funny. was really surprised by that. I thought that was very, very, uh, very unusual. Well, it is, frankly. You know, I mean, I, I think that, that people should be, uh, especially here, should be a little bit more open to uh, – 
men of the cloth like yourself. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> typically when you see people dress up, they have sort of the shoppers drug mark kind of. Uh, right. Yeah. What was that stuff? mustache made of? Because it was very impressive. Yeah, that's actually made of real human hair. What? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually yeah. made from 17th century priest hair. I don't know where the, the actual hair comes from, but it, it's it, that's film production, theatrical grade wow. facial hair. Uh, I use spirit gum and everything to put that on. Wow. The hard part was that you can go and they have like a catalog of all the various mustache types. So you can get the handlebar, right. you can get the... They, of course, did not have 16th century Spanish yes. priests, uh, so yeah. I had to kind of manufacture that, which was uh, strange and interesting, yeah. especially because the ones that I bought, that was their last one in the shop. So when I took it home, it was this massive curtain of hair, <laughs> and I had to try to figure out how to trim it. And of course, every hair is put into a mesh, and I had asked them, I said, if I cut it from this angle, is the whole thing going to fall apart? Right. What's going to happen? So, yeah, it was tricky to – by the time yeah. I was done, I had – Grande up here, and then yeah. the sink was just covered in black hair down wow. there. But it was, it was wow. fun to put together. Well, that's awesome. Uh, that <laughs> deserves uh, – I think we have to have another look at that then. Hang on here. Um, <laughs> that is real human hair. Wow. That's good stuff. That is good, good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. you literally bond it to your face. Wow. So there's there's two bottles. One is to adhese it to your face, right. and then the other one's to take it off later on. Right. Don't lose the one that you need to take it off. Yeah, I'm sure taking it off isn't as much fun as putting it on. That would be well, my guess. The, yeah, the only issue is like I if I took it off halfway through the evening, it would have just had this cake of weird glue. <laughs> <laughs> Yuck. 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 Uh, now speaking of costumes and cosplay, there was something yes. I wanted to share that I thought. It was very, very special. Um, recently, I'd say about a month ago, was a, a big convention in the United States called Dragon Con. Right. While there are lots of conventions, Wizard Cons, uh, Fan Expo, and, and Comic Con, of course, that are all devoted to comic books, Dragon Con is the place for professional cosplayers. This is where you go for the best of the best of the best right. costumes. I mean, outside of Japan, this is the best place really to go and uh, I was gonna you know take a look at a bunch of them and show them off but I found one one that really really stood apart from everything else that's out there and it's by a Canadian girl named Melissa Lee uh, let's see if I can pull it up here there we are uh, yeah and she decided to design her own character rather than go for one that's already out right there. she here she is as cyber girl oh looking at is a very elaborate costume where you've got a, a helmet, you've got this massive sword gun kind of thing, yeah. and then her spine, which completely lights up and actually changes different colors. That so this is was a very crazy. complex build. It involved having to master electronics as well as to be able to do CNC engineering on all the different uh, and, materials. And batteries. Lots and, and lots of batteries. Oh, yeah. She, she writes on her website about the batteries that she managed to get the weight down low because that... <laughs> That's oh, yeah, a big, right, big right. issue when you've got batteries strapped all over. Uh, I'll show you here. Here she is uh, doing a test at home, strapping the uh, spine onto herself. Oh, that's and cool. And trying to check it out in the mirror and see just how it works. Um, she was using what's called an Arduino kit. There's a company down the, in the States that is now the 21st century version of those Radio Shack kits that you right. used to get. That would teach you how to do electronics. Now you could get them and they include things like LEDs and program circuit boards and stuff like that. And so she's actually used that to put a microprocessor on her body and light it up. And it just looks fantastic so i was yeah. that was the best costume that i could see coming out of dragon con and uh that's uh you know a girl from our own hometown yeah that's Canada. cool uh she seems like she's really really cool let me see if i can find do 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 do, do. Uh oh i think i've lost her website but she had a listing of, of all the research that she has done. She's an amateur entomologist. She's doing, <laughs> like oh. it's just a PhD. Lots yeah. of lots of things that she's studying on. She says that she's this Canadian girl that's out to explore the southern U.S. And so, mm. yeah, fantastic job for her there. That looked fantastic. Yeah, that's very cool. That's very cool. I'll put that uh, shot, the final shot, up again, right there. Good gosh. 
And it's it's amazing when these uh, girls put together these costumes that they have the confidence to do so because a lot gets to be revealed. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's you you know you're designing stuff like this. You're spending a lot of time indoors at your desk doing drawings right. and sketchings and putting stuff together. Not necessarily have the time to go to the local fitness club. So I don't know how they uh. manage to. Uh, get the figures that they do, and then you know you're talking about a woman who's working on her PhD. Ah, that's just it, it's scary. Well, the, the other thing I noticed about that photograph is the uh, carpet. Uh, okay. The carpet that you see in that photograph. Uh, no, no matter where this was, you said this is in the United States, but uh, the carpet in that photograph is the same carpet that's in every hotel ballroom in the world. <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, it might not be exactly that, but it's always that for some reason. That kind so of pattern. I guess the, it's probably the puke pattern or something that yes. if you have an accident, it doesn't show up nearly as well. Exactly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, that's a good backdrop for, for her creation there. It is. It um, is. She doesn't put too much information on her website. I'll put a link up, of course. Sure. She has a bit of a description. I was hoping there'd be video. I, believe me, I looked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to see, see that spine. That light spine light is light cool. That spine is very, very cool. cool. So, yeah. I want to thank Melissa Lee for... Uh, sharing photos online, and uh, yeah, I'll put a, a link to that. Right. Well, um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about uh, is still book-related, um, but uh, just marginally. <clears throat> we've been lucky, as we talked about earlier, uh, in getting good reviews for the book. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter was a huge surprise for me. They loved the book. Uh, the Popshifter.com has said wonderful things about it. Uh, they said something like, um, if you've not yet seen the film, the book will make you want to. If you have seen the film, the book will make you want to watch it again immediately. Um, so that's very nice. And uh, loads of, of other great reviews, the art scene, and, and lots of places have given us good reviews. Um, there was one bad review that came through, and I'm not going to talk about where it came from. But it really made me think about sort of the nature of reviews and and listen it's what I do for a living I review things uh, and so if you're gonna put yourself out there you have to be prepared to take the criticism and absolutely I am um, but the the review uh, was uh, I, I thought a, a little nasty spirited oh. and but the, and what it, but but beyond that and I'm not gonna really talk about it in, in any sort of specifics other than to say what it, it, it made me think about what I do in the rest of my life and how I review things, and I, and you know, I, I've, I've often wondered as I write reviews about things that I don't like very much because that's you know, listen, you don't hit a home run every time out when you know you go to the movies, and uh, often I have to write bad reviews for things, and um, uh, there's a couple of guidelines, you know, nothing is ever personal, no, for me, and because I've seen that. Uh, happen. I've seen reviews that are written that are uh, that, that become like personal vendettas, personal attacks, uh, and that's unpleasant and and uh, unwarranted. And uh, I think you know strains the credibility of the person that's writing the review and says more about the person writing re the review than it does about the, the person that's being criticized uh, or the filmmaker or whoever the writer. Um, so there's that, but also I just think uh, keeping. Uh, an even keel uh, is important in, in the sense that uh, instead of, of trying to display how much you know, have a look and, and review the book or the movie or whatever it is that you're reviewing uh, in a fair and balanced way, I think is so important. And in a, in a, in a strange way, this, this uh, one lone, not so great review, <laughs> uh, it really kind of reinforced uh, to me uh, uh, the, the positive things that I try and bring to the job when I do it. Um, I, by far and away, don't give things good reviews all the time. And uh, I don't uh, often, uh, not often, that's not true, but I don't always agree with the mainstream opinion on no. uh, films, which is, you know, fine. Listen, this is the most subjective job in the world. Um, but I also don't think that I'm ever petty or uh, mean-spirited um, or, or uh, sort of nasty or make personal attacks in anything that I do um, professionally in the probably, I don't know how many reviews I write a year, a couple hundred anyway. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, but you're a reviewer as well. And I, you, know, you, you have to you know, adhere to a certain set of guidelines as well. 
Oh yeah. I mean, for me, it's, it's because you're dealing with consumer products. There's a number of balls that are sort of in the air. Right. Uh, You're dealing, especially with uh, technology because the question that you often have to answer is whether or not people should buy it. And that becomes very, very complex because you know that there are some people out there who are going to buy it just simply because it's a luxury. And then there are people out there who they only have a certain budget. So when you answer that question, who is, who are you answering that question to? It's really, really tough. Uh, With the iPhone five, the the big question was, should I upgrade? Well, that's very different, you know, um, question than should you just go and buy the phone on its own. So it's, it's tough. You have to kind of answer and address all those different things. Uh, and then when you're you're writing a negative review, um, I think that it's important to have real reasons as to yes. why you think that things aren't working, and that you should make an effort to try to explain that. Uh, yeah. One of the games that I ripped apart was Epic Diz, uh, Epic Mickey, which was a very surprising thing for me to have right. to do because it's a it's a Walt Disney game, um, but I had issues with it in that I played right. it and I had to be honest that I didn't enjoy myself. Right. There was a certain expectation that they had in terms of what they were trying to do, and I didn't feel that it, it met that. And I had a lot of people surprised because mine came off as being more negative than others. It wasn't right. personal. It wasn't like I hated the game designer Warren Spector. Actually, I don't mind. I know the guy. He's, he's, he's quite right. a well-known uh, game designer, but you know that's just the way it goes sometimes. You have to be kind of honest about it, but it's hard because your audience is going to be coming at you from different places too. Um, well- well, yeah, I've learned a couple of things. Uh, I've learned that uh, you have to be careful what you say about Clint Eastwood. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, listen, I, my back is broad. I'm willing to take the punches when they come. But uh, it was for the movie Gran Torino, uh, of all things. And I, I didn't enjoy Gran Torino. A lot of people did, I know. And good on you. I was not one of them. Right. And, uh, and I said so, and I was, you know, vocal about it in my usual on television, the radio, wherever, you know, I, I, I said it. And then uh, it, it was, uh, what happens with me? So on the radio, all the reviews that run on Friday are generally pre-taped because at the time that they're running, usually on television, doing them live, doing on another station, doing them live. And uh, this particular week, um, it was it was blanketed across the country with the with the uh, taped radio reviews, and then I was on Canada AM reviewing it, and then I hopped in a car and I went out to the airport, and I went to Los Angeles. I was working down there. Uh, the, the next day, I had to be there, so I left and I went down, and uh, so I didn't check my emails for a while. You know, I did. I got there and I turned on my phone, and I thought the thing was going to burst into flames, and it was Clint Eastwood lovers, Clint Eastwood fans. Uh, you know, delighting and telling me how wrong I was about the movie, uh, which was ironic to me because I would have to suggest that 75% of them, there's no way they could have seen the movie. I see everything in advance usually. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, they were just, you know, more responding to Clint than anything else. And I get it. He is an icon. People love him. I had the sense that a lot of these people that were getting in touch with me were older people who looked to Clint as someone who was still uh, producing and viable and, and, you know, with a never say die kind of attitude at age 82 that maybe they respond to in a very big way. I get all that. I just didn't like the movie. (laughs) Well, and and, you know, people have to realize that number one, when you're reading review, it's not required for you to agree with the opinion of the person who's writing the review. In fact, that really is neither here nor there. Uh, It's more about, you know, whether that person, um, offers an interesting experience relates the fact that they've checked out the movie or they've checked out the game or they checked out the piece of technology and give you an interesting sort of description of it. You don't have to agree at the end. I mean, there's lots of people who are like, you know, I hate Apple. I'm not going to buy a stupid iPhone. Great. I'm not here to sell you one. I don't work for Apple, but I hope that when you read my review about it, that in having that conversation that I at least sort of, you know, elicit some interesting things for you to go off and think about later on. You oh, exactly. I agree with what I'm thinking. Of. Well, yeah, here's the other thing too is, um, and this has come up time after time after time with me and here, I'll, I'll put it to red here, put it to bed here and hopefully no one will ever do this again. That won't happen. <laughs> no. But, uh, you know, I get people, uh, who, if I like something, uh, or if I don't like something and they like it they're or vice versa, I've had this response. Well, you know, do you think I'm just too stupid to get it? Or do you think I'm stupid because I like it or whatever? It's like, no, no, I don't. 
I don't think you're a bad person because you like Gran Torino. I no. don't. I, I, I think that simply we have a, a, a there, there's a gap between <laughs> our opinions. We can talk about it if you like, or we can just accept that, you know, we don't like the same things and move on. No, and it would be completely boring if we did like the same things. Yeah. In fact, I find that just in reading the reviews of other people, when they don't agree on something, it seems to me painfully obvious. It's like, wow, that's really, really fascinating to me. <laughs> I try to learn more about it. And it's not just even reviews. Um, it's also some of the artists, some of the people that you might worship. If you ever get to meet them, you might be shocked by exactly just what their opinions might be. Well, um, here's something fascinating that I'm going to pull up. Here is this blew my mind. <laughs> all right. Uh, let, me, let me see if I can find it here quickly. Uh, you know, we all look to Ingmar Bergman as uh, you know, as a, a, a filmmaker, obviously no. I mean, he was you know one of Woody Allen's major uh, influences. Um, he was the sort of one of the bleakest of the art house directors, uh, a film god uh, who made movies about the absence of God. I mean, this is somebody in in terms of film language that you have to be able to. Uh, uh, at least uh, have an appreciation for whether or not you like the movies or not. Uh, but apparently, I have discovered here, there's a new uh, documentary being made uh, about the videos and DVDs that he liked. Because he used to get sent everything that was released in uh, in Sweden. And, you know, you... <laughs> Uh, you might not imagine that the director of the Seventh Seal, you know, which was yeah. set during the Black Death, uh, would be a huge fan of the Die Hard movies. You might not uh, really believe. Uh, let me just see here. He loves. Um, well, Sunset Boulevard got five stars from him. He would mark on the on the video cases uh, a marking X's. So uh, Sunset Boulevard got five X's. I don't. Yeah, I, it's one of my favorite. I love that movie. Um, uh, Michael Haneke film, The Piano Teacher, gets four X's. I can completely uh, get that. But um, he also loved, let me see, where is the one that really surprised me? He really loved, oh, The Blues Brothers. Oh, wow. He even had a Blues Brothers T-shirt that he would wear <laughs> around the house. And I think that's awesome. That's fantastic. That's awesome. yeah. yeah. No, that's just, yeah. well, um, the Clockwork Orange, boom, 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 Alex, yeah. Yeah. that has been re-released as an iPad edition. Well, it's um, also, that yeah. was for a very long time, my, my iPhone uh, case. Yeah. Until I dropped it and broke it and I refused to give it up. But that is the case <laughs> of my iPod. It's my Clockwork Orange. Well, there's a, there's a new iPad uh, edition that you can get, and right. it's fantastic. Right. I mean, not only does it include, you know, sort of the, the, the Penguin, uh, is it Penguin? Yeah, Penguin Classic yeah. edition, but also the original manuscript. So mm, you can actually see his typewritten cool. pages, that's with cool. handwriting. Uh, there's audio extracts. Now, those have been available in audio cassette. I have them up there. <laughs> but what was fantastic is that they packaged in a lot of interviews. Oh, and yeah. it is really weird to get a sense of who Anthony Burgess was as the man compared right. to the guy who wrote this because the two do not seem to meet in any way, shape, or form. Right. Uh, Anthony Burgess, of course, he's, he's quite um, a prolific writer. He's written lots of novels. I've tried to read some of his other books, and I have a hard time getting through them. Yeah, me too. And so listening to him, he's very pretentious in the way that he speaks. <laughs> right. I'm talking to them. And he's reading as Alex DeLarge, so it's, it's an odd kind of surreal experience. But uh, for the, the creator of Clockwork Orange, they sat down at a college radio station. They had an interview with him in the late 1970s. Right. And at this time, of course, punk rock is just exploding. Right. And it was through punk rock that I first came across a Clockwork Orange because for yep. the punk rock generation, that was the film to see. Uh, there wasn't a head shop in Toronto that you could walk into that yes. didn't sell the Clockwork Orange posters. Uh, that's where you would go and get your steel-toed boots, where you would get your droog sort of, you know, armor and clothing and all sorts of things like that. So, I mean, it's it's hard to separate the two. It's hard right. to separate Clockwork Orange from the punk rock, punk rock movement. Right. So they asked right. him about it. They said, you know, what do you think of the Sex Pistols? What do you think of punk rock? And he made it abundantly clear he wanted – he just couldn't understand it. 
He said, I don't get it. He says he thought it was very juvenile, immature. I don't know what it is that these punk, so-called punks really want. I don't understand them. Right. Uh, he felt that um, if his best attempt to try to analyze it, he said that these are, are, are immature kids that are behaving yeah. like babies, that he felt the uh, safety pin that people wore was symbolic of being a baby with diapers. <laughs> uh, That's overthinking it a little bit there, he felt that uh, the the fact that they kept um, railing against the queen was the fact that they were railing against their mother. That that was symbolic of that. Now he he just he was very dismissive. He just thought it was a silly little thing that would last for one year, would have no impact on society. He did not understand what the the allure, what the influence was. And they thought, okay, well maybe it's the the extreme nature of punk rock. But there are other types of music that again also have drawn. Uh, influences from A Clockwork Orange. They asked him about David Bowie, and his response was, I can't stand David Bowie. I well, the man's David obviously David. a fucking idiot. Yeah, That's I mean, all I have to say about that. <laughs> but it's just, and I, I, I've been reading the book again, and I'm trying to understand how the guy who wrote A Clockwork Orange, who could yeah. encapsulate you know, uh, the droogs and guys like Alex DeLarge, yeah. could not relate or understand to punk rock, uh, to, to the very kind of groups of people that he was describing. I don't understand it. But. Yeah, I don't get it either. I mean, maybe it was odd for him to see, you know, maybe it was odd for him to see something that was created in his imagination in some way come to life and rather than respond to it, you know, like, hey, listen, I told you this was, uh, you know, on the go. <laughs> this was going to happen. Um, he saw it. He saw it as, uh, as um, I don't know. I don't know. I find that really odd. I find that really odd that he wouldn't. I mean, he was probably quite old by the time this was all happening, I would imagine. Yes. Yeah, so that was- might be, that might be probably just couldn't understand the music, but. He was an older man listening to it, you know, 30, 40 years later. But even then, just in in listening to him talk about the various generations, because they were trying to get him to say, okay, well, obviously your book is speaking, maybe not to the punkers. You have before that the Teddy Boys. You have the accordion strutters. You have the uh, angry young men. Every generation has had that. And again, yeah, he was, (laughs) as far as he was concerned, that had nothing to do with whatever he was talking about in the Clockwork Orange. And it's just Okay, well then, where did that come from? Because reading the book, I mean, the fact that he invented NADSAT, this this sort of teenage language that he described yeah, yeah. so perfectly, how these guys would work in tandem as groups of four to go around and perform these routines on people to shake them down and ultra violence. Yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's like, did he not write it? Did somebody else write it? He published it. He's taken. I don't know. So there's always that kind of be that disconnect when you're reading somebody else's material that you cannot be so sensitive as to get upset because somebody's opinion doesn't quite match your own you have to kind of take it for for what it is and be more fascinated because now i'm intrigued i would you know unfortunately i don't think he's alive anymore but i would love to sit down and just sort of okay where does this come from then because yeah. i'm not quite sure you know what's going on here maybe what you do is you get you know john Lydon to sit down and talk with him about it because i interviewed him last year and Johnny Rotten, John Lydon, and uh, he was a fascinating guy who's smarter than people give him credit for. Uh, he is eloquent. He is unpredictable. Uh, he's an odd man, but man, that was one of the highlights of 2010 for me. No, 2011 uh, for me was talking with John Lydon. Uh, he's whip smart, very, very intelligent. Somebody who was high, very influential on me in terms of my youth. He was somebody that much like that David Cronenberg documentary I described, that was a big moment for me sitting on the couch and watching an interview with him and going, oh, wow, like this guy's really, really smart. And today I can still think back on some of his philosophies. He was almost Socratic in the way that he would go back and forth with uh, interviewers and reporters who he felt they were asking dumb questions, but he would give answers that would make them go off and try to think about it. Unfortunately, most of them didn't think about it. (laughs) Very, very smart man. Yeah, I know. I liked him. Uh, I liked him very much. And, and, you know, I was a little nervous about interviewing him because I had, you know, I mean, that, that his music, uh, not only with the Sex Pistols, but with Public Image Limited, was so, so influential for me and, and, and meant so much to me uh, that I wasn't really sure what was going to happen. And, and I remember thinking to myself before it all went down, I thought, you know what, uh, if he's awful, it's okay. You know, if he's if it turns out that this doesn't go well... And then he's just sort of like this sneering kind of uh, uh, dismissive 
punk rock guy uh, that I've seen sometimes in interviews that he, mm-hmm. he can become. I thought, you know what, that's okay, because uh, he's still John Lydon. He still was a huge influence to me, and I'm happy just to have met him. Uh, but as it turned out, uh, you know, luckily it didn't work that way. And, and uh, I'm just pulling up a photograph uh, from that day. And uh, he was uh, he was lovely. I mean, he he uh, he he was fascinating. He was open to talking, and um, and I can't find the photo. But uh, but the, the, again, the the uh, the photo, which I don't know why I don't have it right at my fingertips, <laughs> uh, <laughs> considering that I'm such a, a huge fan. But um, the the meant a lot to me. Meant a lot to me to be able to. Uh, to sort of check him off the list of mm-hmm. fascinating people who shaped my life, who I would have liked to have met. Right. Yeah. And just have that brief moment. Yeah. Well, let's see. I want to introduce a special feature. I don't know if we're going to do it every week, but uh, we'll see. All right. And uh, it's called, has Richard Krause seen Sherlock? Oh, Richard Krause has not. Oh, what is this? <laughs> I'm confused by what I'm seeing on the screen. <laughs> So yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's, I, I know I've I've mentioned it to you yeah. several times in the past. Very, very sort of soft, very light. Benedictine Cumberbatch. I like saying his name. Yeah, yeah, Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch. And so I know, and partly you've you've had a busy time, film festivals, yeah. book launches, and stuff like that. Yeah. So I thought now would be sort of a good time to start this little campaign and say, hey, you should see Sherlock. You know, it's it's a it's a good show. Oh no, and and I will I will watch Sherlock. I know it's a good show, and I know that I'm missing out by by not uh, uh, staying you know sort of in touch with it. But I will. I swear to God, I will watch it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I mean, if you go to any kind of get together, any kind of party, and you mention television shows, everyone is going to say, "Oh, oh, oh you got to see yeah. Game of Thrones. Or you got to see Dexter or Nurse Jackie or or whatever the the, the hot trend is of the week." Right. And there are lots of shows out there that are good quality. Quality uh, programming shows that if you sit down, you're certainly going to have a rewarding time. But I agree with the sentiment that you know you don't have to see everything that's out there. So it's it's always kind of uh, annoying when people start to kind of push and say, "Hey, you need to watch uh, Battlestar Galactica. You need to watch this." I get you know inundated. I've yet to see Breaking Bad, even though everybody. You know what? I've never seen Breaking Bad either, and I hear it's fantastic. I know people love this show, and I I think what for me what's happened. Is that uh, it is? Uh, it's too late now for me. I I, I want to watch and I will watch, but I've got to watch from the beginning. You know? Right. Well, and people are already making pop culture references, and I feel like it's going to be spoiled for me because I've already caught some of the things, but right. working and whatever that's going on. So yeah, it's 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 hard because there are certain shows. It's just it's not even just finding the time, but also making sure that you approach it in the right mood, uh, right. that you're kind of into it. Sherlock for me is in a different category. You know, there are lots of shows that I could say to yourself or my other friends, hey, you need to check this out because I think it's really good. Sherlock, to me, is really important television. Right. Um, It is up there with, say, The Twilight Zone. It is up there with The Wire, which is often on the top five lists when people talk about the greatest TV shows of all time. And that was a series that took me a long time to go and sit down and watch The Wire, but I totally agree. And it's not even – I'm not even into, you know – cop dramas like that but the wire really is from just in terms of what can be done with television in terms of the format fantastic series really well see I know, again i haven't seen that either and, no. and i don't know if it's because i watch things for a living that sometimes you know the idea of sitting down and watching something like that begins to feel like work to me on days when i don't want to work you know and uh but the wire from what i understand it's one of those things that if you want to, I've got the box set sitting out there somewhere, uh, meaning to get to it at some point. But I understand that, like, they'll make a reference to something in, in the first season, and then nothing until, like, the sixth season, and it will come back as a re- So you really have to pay attention. You have to watch it. You have to understand what's happening with it. Well, it's, it's important just because it's a, a completely literary approach to television. Right. In that you're not following one character. It's not all sitting on the shoulders of one star. Right. Uh, it is far more of a large, scaled-back story. It's you know, you're, it's almost like classic literature being applied to right. the worlds of NYPD and such like that. Right. And then you know, the characters and the way that it analyzes the situation of that city, what's happening in terms of the drug wars and the way that it discusses themes. 
far more intelligent than you get in most television shows. I think my problem with TV series right now is that they tend to be written by committee. Um, you know, the first season tends to be really good because there's one showrunner and then that guy leaves and then it's like everybody goes off of the character and by about season three, it's, you're watching it just sort of the sake of watching it. It's really, right. really kind of tough. Um, right. Sherlock is has that sense uh, it's like watching a movie because you feel like you're in the hands of one person one master storyteller from the beginning straight right. to the end and so you feel comfortable about following it all the way through but it, it really is i think one of the best and most intelligent approaches to creating television as a story medium uh that's out there everyone mm -hmm. that's involved is at the top of their game i mean right. stephen moffat is already a big name because of doctor who right. doctor who stuff is fantastic but it's not as good as sherlock mark gatus wow. who you know is well known for horror and and many other things phenomenal in terms of writing i've watched people in the industry tweet him on twitter and go you are clever 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 boy uh, <laughs> you drive me crazy with your cleverness well, well yes I, I tell you, I, I will, I will uh, come clean with you. I will not see it this week. I'm going away mm -hmm. for a little break because I'm going to start punching people soon <laughs> and, uh, um, if I don't get one. And so we're, I'm taking a little break, and I'm leaving town for a little while. But I will try and get to it in the next little while. Yeah, yeah. No, of course. Uh, the, 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 the only thing that's sensitive about it is you have to make sure that you don't, don't let anybody tell you anything right, about the series. Right. Because no, it does not. have that issue in that in the second season, as I, there's that problem that you right. have where there are things that are revealed, and so yeah, it's right. best to, to right. avoid. But yeah, um, while we're uh, sort of before we move on here, let me show. There you. it is. I, I found it. Johnny Rotten. That's John. That's John Lydon and me uh, last year after we interviewed uh, um, and talked about uh, a movie that he was involved in. And, and then the conversation just went kind of all over the place, but uh, he was fantastic. That picture, if I could, would be about the size of this wall and uh, hung uh -huh. up there, not yet. Very smart man. Well, uh, we're going to end off with the much promised uh, battle mm. of the monsters. Yes. So every week we're going to, uh, discuss two monsters, and we're going to put those up as a poll on our website at HailYouZombies.com. We'd like you right. to vote in terms of which you think is the uh, the greatest of the two monsters. Then we're going to take the winner and post and face that monster off with another one for the following week. Right. And so to get things started, I thought we could begin um, with before World War II, the very classic era of monsters in movies. I was thinking, I mean, that's an era where you've got um, the Wolfman. You've got the Invisible Man. You've got the Mummy. Yeah, all the great universal horror. Uh, completely. Yeah, yeah. Even like the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Phantom mm -hmm. of the Opera. But I think that it's already kind of decided as to who the two standouts from that generation are. And that would have to be uh, Frankenstein as well as Dracula. Yeah, and I was just looking at the bookshelf here. John Landis, uh, who directed Ingmar Bergman's favorite movie, The Blues Brothers, uh, has written a fantastic book. Uh, about uh, monsters through the ages, and I think it must be in the other room. It's a big coffee table book, and it is a fantastic look at uh, all things horror, and uh, you should really have a look at it. You know, of the two, I can see uh, the, the, the sort of interesting facets of both these characters. Um, you know, I, I think that Frankenstein, in many ways, uh, there we are, Boris Karloff is Frankenstein. Uh, looks like the first movie. In the second movie, he was a little fleshier. He had gained some weight, I think, right. because quite literally when he made this movie, he had made 80 movies or something up until this point, but he had only ever been like a working actor. He wasn't a star. He was just a, a day player almost. Uh, and then after this, he became a huge success. And in the, the, the couple of years gap that there was between Frankenstein and The Bride of Frankenstein, I think he could finally afford food. Quite literally, because there's a marked difference in the way he looks in the two <laughs> uh, movies. But uh, it, it's interesting with the Frankenstein character. For me, for my money, you have a character here uh, who is, um, in terms of, of the sheer horror of it all, um, you know, he himself is not a bad character. He's not an evil character. But the idea of his creation, I think, is what set people off, uh, you know, at the time that this movie was made and before when the book was written. Uh, because, you know, it was the idea of someone playing God 
Victor Frankenstein uh, playing God and creating life where none existed before. And I think that that sort of religious aspect of this was probably one of the things that people found most troubling about Frankenstein. Whereas the Dracula character, the movie Dracula character anyway, was a romantic character, was, was uh, you know, a, a much different kind of thing, uh, but sort of like quite literally lived off your vital juices, you know, would, would, could, lived off humans. Uh, so he's sort of a parasite. And I, I wonder, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but there was a wave of, of, uh, of uh, immigration to the United States around the time that this movie was made. And so, uh, you know, previous to this, uh, the, the immigrants coming into the U.S. had, uh, they were from Ireland and they were from England and places like that. They, they, they were considered, I guess, exotic, but only mildly exotic. Whereas, you know, when you started getting immigrants coming in from other countries who didn't speak English and, and had uh, different, well, you know, way different accents and, and different customs and things, um, I have a feeling that there is some correlation between the horror that uh, people felt uh, at Dracula and his crazy Transylvanian accent and his otherworldly ways that might be related somehow. Yeah, I love, I mean, uh, Dracula, it, it would be easy to say between the two of them uh, to, to pick Dracula because vampires have been such uh, a major trend even in the modern age uh, right. compared to back then. Right. But um, certainly I think between the two of them, I would guess that actually Frankenstein was probably the most scariest at the time. Uh, you're, you're bang on right in terms of the sexuality of uh, the vampires. I mean, both there's Bella, who, you know, it's, it's funny. People have been very campy when it comes to Bella Lugosi and Dracula. Over the years, everybody's like, whoa, whoa, you know, yeah, yeah. I want to suck in her blood. Go back and watch the original Dracula film, and it's hypnotic. It's very frightening. His well, charisma is just unlike anything else. Well, that there was a time, time yeah. there was a time when Bella Lugosi was getting more fan mail and love letters to the studio than Clark Gable, that who was not, the leading man of the day, the leading man du jour. Does not surprise me. I mean, there's a, a real sinister kind of a allure to the man. Yeah. Uh, and then even across the pond, if we go over to uh, Christopher Lee, yeah. There's also the other great Dracula, yeah. uh, which I love just because you can see the incredible beast uh, when he does become the vampire. Well, he was a much more imposing guy. You know, Christopher Lee is very tall. He's much larger than uh, Bela Lugosi. And even, I mean, because of the difference in time when the movies were made, uh, the Dracula character was allowed to be a little bit more expressive a little bit more violent a little bit more i mean you know you would never have seen uh, a shot like this from the original dracula movie no no not with the blood running down no. <laughs> quite like that and the big yeah. demonic eyes well i mean the, the the tradition of the the vampire in terms of fiction goes back to um a german periodical called varney the vampire yeah that's right and that was the 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 was really kind of a a, mo a mix of horror and bodice rippers that we have with erotic fiction now. It was always about a woman, you know, scantily clad in her bed at night and how there'd be this imposing man outside her window and the window would slowly creep open. I mean, there'd be this very exaggerated yeah. description of every inch by inch as he would approach <laughs> towards her, her chest would be heaving and, and all of that. And I think oh, a lot of that heaving and yeah. And then I think a lot of that kind of translated towards the, the, the Dracula film. So it was much right. more of an adult experience. There was a lot more going than just right. the, the pure terror, but Frankenstein uh, to me, I, most of the descriptions that I've heard from people who are of that age, that was just terrifying. If you were a little boy, especially right. that moment when, you know, he's lying on the, the, the table and that hand is there and then suddenly it starts to, you know, come alive that the whole yeah. theater would just go crazy. And you'd hear that call of, you know, it's alive. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's still, well, that is one of the great scenes. I mean, and you know, uh, this weekend, uh, Frank and weenie. I wonder, do I have any Frank and weenie pictures here? Now Frank and weenie is uh, opening and it's, this is a Tim Burton movie that he has tried for uh, 26 years to get made. And, uh, you know, here, let me show you. This is a still. This is a still from Frank and Weenie. And he's tried for 26 years to get this made. And it is the story of a, a young boy, Victor Frankenstein, and his very normal parents. They live in a small town. They have a dog named Sparky. Sparky gets killed 
And the boy is so uh, upset by this that uh, he can't quite let it go. And he uh, makes Sparky his uh, science project and brings him back to life. So it's probably, uh, well, if it's not the only, it's certainly the best corpse reanimation movie for, for kids ever made. <laughs> but it's a fantastic movie. And there's a scene in this movie that uh, very much echoes the, the monster coming to life in the original Frankenstein movie. It's a great homage, all done in black and white, in 3D, in stop-motion animation. It's so beautiful. It's just a treat to look at. Yeah, I love the, the themes of Frankenstein. Frankenstein, of course, is the beginning of science fiction. Yeah. There are people who sometimes will cite, say, H.G. Wells. Problem is, you know, that's 100 years later. Uh, yeah. Frankenstein was written in 1818. And, uh, you know, the themes that are in it are amazing. I think you're absolutely right. There was a very strong religious factor that yeah. if you could create life, obviously God is the only person who could create life. So yeah. what exactly is inhabiting your creation? It can't yeah. have come from God. So it's not a pure soul. It has to be a demon or something yeah. along those lines. But just, yeah, playing with the, the intangible nature of, of what is up with dead flesh. You know, today, uh, it's funny, and I, I've talked about this in your radio show, how difficult it is for medical science to determine if someone is really dead and right. not bury them by accident. And how that this is been... really terrifying. It really is. <laughs> is. Well, and what's funny is that there's something new that I've heard about it. I mean, it's not just that there, people would go to great lengths to try to make sure that they weren't being buried alive. They would right. have these fancy coffins that would ring bells and all sorts of stuff. But that it, it, it took the invention of the stethoscope to find a reliable way to be able right. to listen and hear if somebody still had a pulse or not. Right. Today, um, scientists took a bunch of uh, electrocardiogram sensors and they hooked it up to Jello. And Jello, because of the, its weird nature, its yeah. physical presence, actually gives off the same readings as a human brain. Wow. So if you were to, you know, go into a room and not have a scientist in the other room and not tell him what's going on, he only had the output monitor, yeah. and he would look at it, he would tell you that there's a human being in the other room hooked up to the machine because the brain patterns going across the screen would match, and yet it's nothing more than a bowl of jello. Wow. Um, and so I know a lot of people like that that I wouldn't be surprised by that reading. <laughs> so this becomes the issue. And it's it's funny because I think that um, the, the science that's involved is so complex and so fascinating, and it has yet to reach most of the filmmakers mm. out there. I think Vincenzo did a great job with Splice in yeah. trying to return to the, the themes of Frankenstein. But, yeah, it's, it's a tough choice between vampires or uh, the animated dead. Uh, right. Frankenstein, which would be the bigger monster to kind of move forward. We're going to ask you to go to HeyAllYouZombies.com. We're going to put up both choices on a poll and ask you to vote on one. The winner will match off with another monster next week. See Sound you later, people. <laughs> All right. Here we go. And I'm going to play us out again. Do it. The song we're very happy with uh, to have on the show. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, Johnny O and the Jerks. And here we are playing uh, Zombie. Love affair. Woohoo, I like it. This is good stuff. This is good zombie dance music. <laughs> 